So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man, and here is what's coming up in our season finale. Everything that they say to us in the nursery is said with some judgment. Choosing a school, compiling a playlist, male bonding and potty training. How to be a dad, part five. Plus... Be very careful not to make it sound like he's having a whinge that he's only getting the minge. Alex Fox has an introductory guide to the back door, we'll bring you our record of the week, and Ollie Peart spitting into an envelope in the name of research. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. Uh, Hello, Maria, who says, Ollie, your voice really annoys my husband. I can do shrill if you want me to, Maria. Thank you for enabling me to wind him up in a seemingly innocuous way. I also really enjoy your show. Now, I don't know about you, man fans, but at this point in her email, I thought this would be the moment that she pivots away from appraising the effect of our podcast upon her family's bodies. But no, she concludes her email with, I love making my 19-year-old son blush when he overhears the foxhole. I'm a bit concerned we're altering your entire family dynamic, Maria. Uh, Hello as well to someone identifying as Weasel. Uh, They don't say where they're writing from. I assume Toad Hall. Uh, They say, Hello Ollie, I am a long-term listener to Answer Me This and have now binged on the Modern Man back catalogue too. And I listen to you, as many probably do, whilst at work. I'm employed by a well-known British fan vacuum and hairdryer manufacturer. You can guess the one. Uh, I presume it's Bush. Uh, And therefore, I've had the pleasure of walking past my boss, a knight of the realm no less, whilst listening to you and Alex talking about some of the most intimate subjects imaginable and thinking, if only he knew. (laughs) Well, any vacuum magnate worth his salt has surely confronted more controversial fetishes than we discuss even in the foxhole in his time. But uh, thank you for that. Now, the observant amongst you will have noticed this is the last episode in the current series. So thank you so much for listening over the past 10 episodes. We're all slightly exhausted, so we're going to take a longer than usual break. But we will be back in the late spring. Keep an eye out on our Twitter. We are at The Modern Man, and we'll let you know the date we're coming back when we know it. In the meantime, if you have a suggestion of someone I should interview on the show in 2019, you can even nominate yourself. Get in touch now. Now is a good time. Modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Click feedback. Uh, and equally, head there if you'd like to sponsor the show this year as well. Oh, and, and if you are looking at the title of this episode and thinking, oh, I'm, I'm newish to the show, I haven't heard How to Be a Dad Part 1, 2, 3 or 4... You don't need to, really. It's fine. Uh, But if you want to, um, we have handily put all the links to the previous dad's conversations uh, at modernman.co.uk slash 
stats. Uh, right, in this episode, you will learn how bringing up a baby is a bit like running a petrol station forecourt. You will learn what 38.2% of men aged between 20 and 39 get up to, and you'll learn what performance parenting is. Let's go. The time has come to test out your listener-submitted trends. It's the Zeitgeist with Ollie Pitt. Happy New Year! Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much. You are speaking to me live from your new house in Dorchester. I am. How's the big move? Well, I kept getting told that moving house was like the most stressful experience ever. And it is. It's horrible. I mean, we've had work done. There's dust everywhere. I'm surrounded by boxes. I don't know where half my stuff is. It's, it is, it's stressful. But I'm pleased that I'm in my new house. Which is the box that's the one that you think you will never open? My mum offloaded a load of crap onto me from my school days, so I've got school reports and a painting of a sunset I did when I was four. That's, <laughs> that's not getting opened. I feel like that's the day you go from being a boy to a man, is well, when your mum's like, I don't want your stuff anymore because we're going to turn your room into a gym. Well, I'm at that age now. Well, all I've done is I've scanned them into my phone and they're going straight to the tip. So memories will live on digitally, Ollie. Actually, speaking of selling things, do we have an update on the car? Ah, we do have an update on the car. So you may recall that earlier this season, uh, Ollie's trend was to get his car wrapped, and then you were going to sell the whole thing for charity once it was done. Has it now been done? It's been done, but not the whole thing. So what they did is they've I done. Knew it. They've done. I knew an, they wouldn't do the whole thing. They, they've done. Well, you could end up with a half wrapped car. Well, no, the bonnet and the roof. But you wait until you see what they've wrapped it in. Goodness. What? Well, I described the look as kind of Miami Vice, like eighties. Sort of throwback baby driver esque. Was yeah. it like so? There's a silhouette of a palm tree on it and a rainbow. And um, what else is like a Tron style floor? But it is. For, it will be for sale now. Yeah, because you can't seriously drive that around. Well, I'll put wheels. it out on Twitter, and then the idea is is that the money goes to charity. Raptastic, the people in pool that have done it are keen for it to sell as well. And the money will go to Dorset Mind. That's the plan. So if people got to follow you on Twitter then to see the latest when it's done, when it's finished properly. Yeah, if they're interested, at Ollie EP, O-L-L-I-E-P. All right, well, we're just tying up loose ends here. I realise there's a massive loose end from the end of 2018 regarding a certain song. We'll get to the progress on that in Mm -hmm. a moment. Uh, But first, uh, a couple of weeks ago on the show, Ailish asked you to uh, try out the trend of getting your DNA sampled. How did that go? Well, I'm going to say, they're a DIY DNA testing kit that you get sent through the mail. You give your sample, not semen or blood it is spit or a swab test you send them off and then they email you a link to your but who's the, who's they because there's a few companies offering this there's a lot they? of companies offering this i'm not going to name them all but one of the biggest out there's 23 and me which okay, is, is the, that one, the one you did that's the one i did but ancestry do one and there's another one called my heritage but 23 and me actually is the one that i've heard the most about because they're the big American sort of disruptor startup, aren't they, in this area? And that can and- be a good thing if you're exploring, you know, you want to know your ancestry or you want to find relatives because they have the biggest database. So you have access to more people that have done DNA tests. So potentially you could connect with family that you didn't know you had. You stand more of a chance to do it. Um, right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How much is, is that mentioned in, in the whole process of spitting into an envelope and sending it back to them. Because that's a different... Like, check out your DNA. Oh, it's fun. Let's see what your ancestry is. Let's see what portion you are Norwegian. That's different to let's find out if you've got a half-brother living in France, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. So I actually spoke to a genealogist, uh, a lady called Michelle Leonard, uh, mm-hmm. who is a professional in DNA testing advice. She does family history research and all that kind of stuff. She She's done every single one that's out there. And I was talking to her about the ancestry results that you get because they're the things that these companies tend to promote. So, you know, like you might see 
do the test and you'll get a nice map saying that you're 30% Asian and you're 25% from Africa. But when I spoke to her about that, she said you shouldn't focus on that because actually that science is still very early days. You know, it's still brand new. The results aren't very accurate and it's incredibly broad. And also over thousands of years, those borders have changed anyway. So it doesn't really mean anything. And as a genealogist, she's just like, well, actually what matters to me is family connections. So finding existing relatives. And that's when she was like, but the thing with that that you have to understand is if you do think that there's a potential that your dad's not your dad, just bear that in mind before you spit in the tube and send it back. So I've put all my stuff out there. And by doing that, actually, it's linked me with a whole bunch of relatives. So it says that I have, and I'm reading it now, 1,063 relatives. So these are cousins and distant cousins. But then one match came up with one close relative. And I was, yeah. I'm going to admit, I saw it and I thought, oh, that's, this is weird. What if I am finding something or I'm digging into a history where it's like, it will just unearth something about my family that I didn't know before. And do you know any more information? Does it say where this person lives or... Well, in the interest of this podcast, of course, I went with, well, I'm going to share everything and I want to know exactly who this person is. And she lives in California. Her name's Olivia. She is my second cousin. She shares three and a half percent of my DNA. And she is basically a descendant of my great grandparents. So the DNA that I share with my great grandparents, she shares with me as well. And what the And you didn't know anything about her? I didn't even know she existed. But then Um, who did... I'm trying to work out second cousins. So yeah, great grandparents. So... Well, through this as well, what it then allows you to do is you can request to message them. So I've spoken to Olivia through 23andMe and she's told me exactly who she is and what side she is. So she's from my mum's side. My granddad was her uncle. So did you ask your mum about it? Yes, I asked my mum about it. And was she like, oh yeah, Olivia, a bit of a black sheep, don't speak to her. What was the the story? Well, they knew of her. (laughs) They just deliberately kept you from her. The nice thing was, she was asking about me and what I do and obviously told her why I was doing this. I was doing it for the podcast and whatnot. And she is now... A podcast donor. She has is she? given money to the podcast. She's donated beer. <laughs> so if for no if no other good comes out of this, we've got some beer money. And did you get a ethnic slash geographical breakdown of your DNA? I know that our genealogist said don't bother being interested, but I am. I'm seventy six point two percent British and Irish. I'm ten and a half percent French and German. Uh huh. I'm only half a percent Scandinavian. That's interesting, isn't it? You, you do present as at least 10% Scandinavian. I lived in Denmark for a short time and they all thought I was Scandinavian. Yeah. And I'm 0.3% Ashkenazi Jewish. Are you? I, I would have guessed that we had about 0.3% DNA in common. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. There's, right. there's the match. If I did another test, so Michelle's done all of the tests, mm. you'll get different results. Because their pool of sort of, the, you know, their control, if you like, that they mm. test it against is different, which is why she was saying if you do do these, like the one thing that you want to focus on is is linking your, you know, finding out about your cousins. If you're interested in genealogy, that's the thing that actually you can help to build your family tree. And that was the other thing I found really interesting is that she made a point that if you're interested in sort of building your family tree and finding out where you come from, the DNA testing can only go so far. You still need to go to the archive, dig through the photographs, you know, read the books to find out who your family are. And do you think that's why this is a trend? Do you think that is the appeal to people, is the journey? Actually, what's happening now is more people are getting into it because uh, through this DNA testing rather than the traditional way, because what you would have had to do 
is, like you say, you build your own family tree, you go to the archive, you find it all out, you put it all together, blah, blah, blah. Boring, boring, boring. Whereas this, <laughs> you, sp- you spit into a tube, put it through a letterbox, <laughs> and, then, and then you get some results back and you're like, oh, holy shit. Yeah. And, and actually, as a result of that, this is now the second biggest hobby in the world. Is it? Yeah. Second only to? Gardening. Putting it's, things in soil, popular. You don't have to just do the Ancestry one. With 23andMe, you can do a, a health report as well, so it can tell you about certain diseases that you're susceptible Ooh. to in the future. Okay, so that's the one people are loath to do in case it tells them that they're going to develop Huntington's or Parkinson's or something, and they're not necessarily Basically. prepared for that information. Yeah, I did that. I'm a massive hypochondriac as well, so like this is really bad for me. You're 80% hypochondriac. Yeah, yeah, 80% hypochondriac. Don't worry about it. That's what it said. No, uh, (laughs) I basically, for all of the diseases that it tests for, it's like uh, 10 different diseases, I am at a slightly increased risk of late-onset Alzheimer's. Late-onset? Yeah, which that's a good one, right? Yeah. (laughs) Of the two, yes. So was your anxiety about this allayed? Was it worth doing? In short, yes. You could have those, and people do have worries about their privacy and where, what's going to happen with their data. And I put that what, to Michelle. What worries? It's you, isn't it? It's you in a jar, and you're sending it off to a private company. When I thought about it, I immediately started thinking about Making a Murderer, which is a show on Netflix where this chap, Stephen Avery, basically is a victim, supposedly, of a cover-up where his DNA has been illegally uh, acquired and put into a crime scene, and he's been convicted of that murder. And mm. you think, okay... That might not happen, but my DNA is now out there. Somebody could get it. It's in the hands of a private company that's like, I don't know how that's being regulated or anything like that. So they could potentially get hold of it and use that against me. And if you dig deep in some of the terms and conditions on 23andMe, it does say one of the risks are that there could be a data breach and your identity could be associated with your DNA because that's something that they separate in the storage process anyway. Uh-huh. And then it could be used against against you. What can you do to mitigate that then? Well, you can opt to have it deleted if you want. So you can have your DNA deleted altogether. Have you I, done that? No, I've decided not to. I'm going to keep Why? it. Well, because more this this is a, a growing thing. More and more people are going to do it. And I want to find out about my family history. And if I'm honest, I think that as a concern in the grand scheme of things, I don't think I've got that much to worry about. Okay, so uh, let's move on to your challenge for the series. For the final time this series, Ollie, uh, let's find out... Uh, how your quest to become Christmas number one <laughs> concluded. I don't know why you laugh whenever you talk about it. Well, but no, no. I, I actually, if you recall, in the last episode, got carried away with the enthusiasm about the whole thing and firmly believed that The Sounds of Christmas by Podcast All-Stars would make the UK top 40. Um, but it didn't, did it? Depends what top 40 you look at, Ollie. Because in the UK download charts, we reached number 38. Oh, did we? That is a win, because that is in the top 40, all right? It's a a win changing the rules about which top 40 we've been talking about the whole series, but yes. win's a win. That's very interesting. Okay, so we got to number 38 in the official UK download charts. That's right. But that wasn't sufficient to get us into the top 40 streaming or streaming plus download charts, which is the official overall Christmas chart. And it just shows you the dominance of streaming because we we managed to get thirteen thousand streams over the Christmas period, and Did we, we still—that's quite good, actually. Yeah, it is good, but we got no. Considering near we the were top telling 40. people to buy the record and not stream it, and that wasn't enough to get us in the in the sort of streaming top forty. But it also demonstrates, Ollie Pitt, that as usual, the listeners have got their fingers on the pulse of the trends because 
what did get to Christmas number one was that bloke and some baby doing a cover of something that was worse than what we were doing. Oh, it was appalling, wasn't it? I mean, good on him for charity in that. I don't want to comment and speak out of turn, but as a song. But that, yeah. but, but it was. But what was interesting was it was a novelty song mm-hmm. claiming the top festive slot in the yeah, charts. That's right. Using the same rationale that you'd used all along. It's just that obviously YouTube audiences are bigger than podcast audiences. Yes. But actually, the concept was the same, wasn't it? Let's silo off our audience and get them behind a thing. And actually, trend-wise, you were absolutely bang on. That is what led to the Christmas number one. It wasn't an X Factor winner. It wasn't a children's choir. It was a bloke off YouTube. Yeah, and we could have actually created a bit of a problem because who knows what's going to happen this Christmas now. All it is going to be is a parade of people who are semi-famous on YouTube vying for number one using our formula. It'll be the first app-based number one. (laughs) The Tinder number one, that would be a disgusting song. (laughs) Give me a swipe this Christmas. And also, the thing that genuinely makes it good and not pointless was we did make some money for a great charity for Samuel's charity. Yeah. I I mean, we were still waiting for the money to actually be calculated in terms of sales and streaming. It's going to be a while before we get an official figure on that. It takes months. But what we do know is that we made over £1,000 by listeners like you buying the song. And Martin Lieb from Samuel's charity sent us an email, Ollie, to say that separately to the revenue from the song... He's had over £6,000 in donations from listeners as well. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. Feels good to do something good. Okay. So can we now finally stop talking about this? We can't. Well, not not just yet. I just want to thank people that were involved because, uh, you know, without them, it wasn't just me. Although I'd like to take 20% of the credit. You'd like to take 20% of the songwriting royalties, <laughs> but it ain't going to happen. But there's there's loads of people to, to thank. Firstly, the podcasts, uh, Beef and Dairy, Guilty Feminist, Do the Right Thing, Wannabe, For F1's Sake, Song by Song, The Tip Off, The Comedian's Comedian, Fun Kids, and The Two Shot. And also all the uh, podcasts that took the ad, the Mark Goodyear ad. Yes. So which, who, who, do we know who actually played that out? We do, yeah. We've got Griefcast, The Football Ramble, Rabonus and Rhythms, the entire wireless radio network, which looks after the Times, the Sun's own podcast as well. So it's huge. Loads of people ran the ad. Uh, and also we should thank as well uh, Louise Hill, who's been uh, unpicking all the complexities of the music royalties and uh, helped make sure behind the scenes that we actually launched the song and it came out. Of people course. Could buy it. And naturally, we should be thanking Philip Mark Anquetil, because without his production experience... His musical talents. You can't even say it, can you? Without his skills as a composer who wrote the fucking song, you can't say it. You can't bring yourself to say it. For assisting me (laughs) in putting together a Christmas smash hit, um, well done. Uh, Well, it was good fun this season, Ollie. If you think back across uh, all ten weeks, you know, we had you flailing around with your knob out in episode one, and we've learnt a lot along the way. Yeah. Uh, If you have a challenge for Ollie Pitt for the next season of The Zeitgeist, then head to our website, modernman.co.uk, click feedback, and you can submit it there. Ollie, thank you for all your hard work. I I have worked very hard, haven't I? Yeah, well, thank you as well for the work that you've dashed off without thinking. Now, stay tuned to hear part five in my annual conversations about modern fatherhood. Uh, But first, it's time for our record of the week. It's called High, it's by Lockie, and it's out now on Wolf Tone. Life was a never-ending dream Smiles weren't always what they seemed The warm winds, they came but drew shivers from me Get high, high, high.
Back in 2015, I discovered I was about to become a dad. And that happened, weirdly, at more or less the exact same time that my friends, the comedians Tom Price and Stuart Goldsmith, both discovered they were about to become dads too with their respective partners. Uh, For Tom, it was his second son, and for Stuart, his first child of any kind, also a boy. So we decided to document our feelings about our impending fatherhoods, then the births, then the difficult first six months, and we still get together every now and then to talk about being a modern dad on this podcast. And I know a lot of you really enjoy these episodes, so I tried desperately to get Tom and Stu into the same room this year. (laughs) But we're all busy men, so I recorded with them separately this time. Uh, Stuart has just become a dad for a second time to a baby girl. So I started by asking him the classic new dad question, how are you sleeping? <laughs> not well, not well. Um, this one, uh, baby number two, has uh, reflux. Um, so what it means is that if you put her down, lying down on her back, which is the only way babies can sleep mm-hmm. to prevent uh, nastiness, she screams. So she has been almost exclusively sleeping on us. We've got to nip that in the bud because we can't have her sleep on us indefinitely. But the sleep thing at the moment is that my wife uh, will sleep on a different floor to me and she will take the girl uh, from kind of bedtime, which is sort of about 10. And uh, then I will go up to her at between three or half three, four in the morning and swap over. She won't have slept in that time. She will have the girl sleeping on her while she kind of dozes and does that head nodding thing in the back of a car. So then I'll go up at four in the morning and take over and take the girl downstairs and put her on my chest and sort of doze doing the head nodding thing you do in the back of the car. Um, yes, yeah, so <sighs> it's, it's quite hard. It's harder for my wife, of course. Yeah. And well, here, that caveat always here goes we are re- recording on the first night in five weeks where I had seven hours sleep because I was working away last night. Yeah. So I feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is all manageable. Sure. <laughs> it's been a killer of a month. And one of the dips this time, the first dip was about three days in. Again, three days. Of, we didn't have a system then. We just weren't sleeping. Like I suddenly remembered because you it deletes it deletes itself doesn't it the baby years you can't oh, remember the baby years no it's I like my friend said it's like the um it's like in a garage the CCTV it like deletes every twenty four hours <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is like that. Um, so it, I suddenly was back at that it's like I'm back here oh god this this is going to go on forever what was the thing that surprised you just the middle of the nights and shushing the baby and it not working and you haven't learned them yet and they haven't learned how to be a baby yet. It's like finding yourself back at the start line of a marathon. Yeah. That you were on mile 17 and you were, okay, I've got to do all this again. I've got to put in like another solid year and a half of all of the different phases of nappies. Yeah. All of the, which as soon as one phase is done, you forget and it's gone forever because you never need to do it again. Well, now you need to do it again. And I remember Tom saying that at our first recording when we were all prospective parents of what was going to be his second child and our first. Him saying, I know how to look after a two-and-a-half-year-old now. I can ace that, yeah. but I can't remember what to do with the baby. And I remember me thinking at the time, oh, come on. Like, yeah. you've done it once before. Yeah. Of course you remember. Yeah. But you literally forget it. And even you forget the stage immediately before the one you're in. Absolutely. Like, I've got friends how who are parents s- of, like, a two-year-old. So my son now, same as yours, is coming up to three. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, like, whatever it was, when did you drop the nap? I don't fucking know. I don't know. Like, I've got no I, idea. It's been six months since he napped during the day, so it's irrelevant to me how long yes, he slept six months yes, ago. And this, don't know. Yeah, I'm busy putting out emotional fires. Yeah. <laughs> I do not have time to reflect on uh, on anything. No, absolutely. 
How many hours a night is Edmund sleeping now? So he is currently clocking in. Um, we're, we're talking 10, 11 hours. We're talking, we're talking double figures. Mine's doing 13. 13 well, hours a night sleep. Well, you should probably get them checked out. I know you think clinically yeah, problematic, yeah, right? Something I've asked on Twitter, and that's the same as asking a doctor, and everyone said, no, it's fine. Do- doctor Twitter said it's okay. They said, In that case, he's going he's gonna to be absolutely fine. It's a stage they go through. In fact, someone even said, which is bollocks, obviously, but they said the biological reason for it is to enable mummy and daddy to create a brother or sister. Oh, that's a wonderful reading so of it. It's an interesting have theory, you, isn't it? Have you used that as a chat-up line? <laughs> you know he's doing 13 hours. <laughs> that's incredible. Congratulations. I hate you. Yeah. So, well, no, but 11 hours is good. That's a good yeah, no, solid. He, he does. He, he does double figures. Uh, anything basically. Bearing in mind with Wilfred, who is now six, for the first four years of his life, he didn't sleep for more than three hours. Mm. So anything more than three hours is a win. Also, having two children is really good because Wilfred, the oldest one, is six, and he can go downstairs by himself, and he can now work the remote control. The most important thing he'll ever learn in his life: how to work the remote control. So he will disappear off downstairs first thing. Describe to me that day. Was that this year? It's happened When twice. your son first got up, got himself out of bed, went downstairs, turned on the TV to entertain himself. It's happened <laughs> twice, right? And the first time it happened, we just assumed... It got to about 7.30. My wife and I woke up and we were just looking at each other going, what on earth's going on? Someone's come in and molested him. Oh, of course. He's gone. He's gone. He's yeah. dead. The kids are dead. Oh, well. Oh, well, the dog's next to us. At least the dog's fine. Yeah. That's the important thing. She's okay. Um, so we went downstairs and we found them both sitting on the sofa at 7.45 in the morning and they just looked at us like, what? Why are you looking at us like that? And honestly, it's one of the happiest moments of my life. Yeah, of course. Well, it's a, I mean, it's light at the end of the tunnel, isn't it? It's a vision of what might eventually happen. And of course, one day I will doubtless listen back to this and feel mournful and melancholic that I'm so, I was so wishing the time away. And it makes you appreciate the second one even more. And we, Edmund, I just absolutely adore him at the moment. Like, I'm so into him. It's a great age, isn't it? It's Three. A- it's also that they seem to absorb more of what you feed into them, right? So when they're babies, you know, especially when it's your first, yeah. there's that thing of like, I'm going to sing cool songs to them. I'm going to, you know, whatever, I'm going to use some special technique to get them to go to sleep. And you, then you realise it doesn't matter. Like, And it's as long as they're alive, you've done your job. I mean, of course... Well, actually, I'm- I would say you can do harm by doing all the things. I think yeah, I think with Wilfred, we massively, massively overstimulated him. Mm. I think he was frazzled and... and and that's, you know, he is a very fizzy child anyway. He's got loads of energy and, and you know, almost borderline ADHD-ness where he's just running around and he's just got so much enthusiasm for life. And that's because, I think, for the first year and a half or... Actually, no, how old was he when Edmund was born? Gosh, he was, so he was three and a half when Edmund was, was born. So for at least the first two and a half years of Wilfred's life, three years, we were up in his grill. After this, let's you know, let's go, here we go over here. Look, hey, Wilfred, you happy? Okay, you know, and he's still, as a result expects that of us now mm. Wilfred's the one who needs us sitting on a chair when he goes to sleep Edmund doesn't need that Edmund goes, just lies there and we say goodnight and we go downstairs mm. second kids he more chilled out don't they often? yeah Wilfred's the one who says can you come and draw with me mm. Edmund will go and do it by himself so you know he's, Wilfred's much more reliant and a trickier package than Edmund who's more straightforward I hadn't realised how much harder again it was going to be and I tell you what, on the because uh, you only have the one on the the day she was born, the day the second one was born, I immediately lost respect for any of you, Johnny come lately with your one kid, and you'll oh, tell me about your problems. You know, I mean, it's, it's it's you've become Tom Price. Yeah, sure, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's so hard again in a way that I wasn't expecting. My wife, she's not agitating for a third by any means, but she's not letting me get away with conversationally saying to people, "Oh, that's it now." I really. She's yeah. like, "Oh, you've decided that, have you?" And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, you, whoa." Have you decided otherwise? My take, I guess, was I wanted to have a child, and now I have a child. Like pre-second one, I was like, oh, I have a child. That's what this how is. I feel. I know what this adventure is. Yeah. 
And I feel like if it was difficult for us to have the second one, I'd accept that in a way that I wouldn't sure, with the first sure, one. Sure, sure, sure. You'd be like, oh, well. Yeah. Oh, well, let's focus, We've got on, one. Let's focus on Harvey. Yeah, great. Yeah. I did want the second one. And when we found out it was going to be a girl, we, we sort of were like, yes. Oh, oh, turns out we wanted a girl. We didn't know. <laughs> you know we had like an instinctive reaction. It's such a weird thing to know that in a year and a half, she'll be the first equal most important person in my life. Of course, at the moment, I'd die for her. Of course, I would. But I don't know her. You get nothing I don't know her opinions. Yeah. You know? So, um, must be like God. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If you're religious and you go like, I'm devoted to this thing from whom I get absolutely nothing back. We've spawned little God. It is the closest thing to something spiritual, something religious, isn't it? If oh, you aren't yeah. religious... There's nothing else in my life that gives me that feeling. That's very accurate, that yes. there must be some significance. I don't know if you remember, my father died the week after my son was born. Oh. And recently, about a month ago or so, Harvey saw a picture on my bookshelf, which was me, my mum and my dad, on the day that I graduated from university. And I said, who's that? And he said, Grandpa Stanley. And I'd been saying his whole life, whenever I showed him a picture, that's Grandpa Stanley. And it went yeah. straight over his head. Yeah. And the fact that he knew that, he didn't really know what that means. He didn't really know it was my father. He doesn't really understand that he met him and then he died. But he understands something. He's learned something. Yeah. That was the first... When he said that, I had to go in the kitchen and cry. I haven't... Yeah. That was the first time that had happened for a year. And it's because it was that... Whatever these words are that we're searching for, this quasi-religious feeling that something spiritual, something significant had just happened. Mm -hmm. There was a connection between my forebears and him. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it was that triggered it in me. That's lovely. I would say my instinct would be fight the instinct to go into the kitchen. It's important <laughs> that he sees you cry. Here's the thing that blew my mind recently. Friends of mine who have kids exactly the age of our children yeah. have already started investigating schools. Oh, uh, yeah. He's just turned three. Like, it's it, they don't go to school till the autumn after they turn four, which yeah. in our case is still 18 months so away. 2020, they'll go to yeah. school. So uh, this happened with us. Beth started doing that with Wilfred when he was about this age. And I, I as ever, had my head firmly buried in, in the sand. You know this cognitive dissonance where you, you know that you're lying to yourself. You know you're telling yourself a lie and that, that you need to acknowledge something, but I just, I'm happy not to bother. So I really, I hid away from the school stuff while Beth went in and investigated it. And um, On what basis, though, did that lie... You know, I'd justify say, itself. Were uh, you like, well, it'll be fine because yeah, because it was fine because it's we were, primary school. It's got good parents. I mean, it's the same thing as nurseries. We've spoken about this before with nurseries, right? Where you um, people go and investigate nurseries and really pour over it, and you're like, guys, they're all basically the same. Yeah, and you're not gonna. And you look at that. You look back at that now as a proud owner of a three year old and think, why is that person with a nine month old baby really worrying? The nurseries are going to be fine. Yeah, as long as you you know, as long as there's no black mold on the ceiling and children screaming. <laughs> Uh, you know, like people wiping blood off the, the yeah. walls, then it's probably going to be fine. Oh, don't come home caked in poo. They've done a decent job. Yeah, exactly. And it's a similar thing with the schools. We're really lucky, though. We've got great primary schools near us. And that's it's a big old postcode lottery with, with the schools thing. If you're okay and you're well served, then why on earth would you bother? The thing we're now facing up to, because Wilfred's six, is a lot of people do state till eight. So we know a lot of people who are off to do private school, which is hilarious, not something we're ever going to do. Um, but then 
in the next couple of years, people start to go and get their they get their kids tutored, and then despite the fact their kids are absolutely smashing it, so they can get into a grammar school, so they can get into a grammar school, uh, or so they can go to a private school as well. Where do you stand on the faith school thing? Are you going to pretend to be religious to okay. get your kid into a better school? I have so many answers to this. First of all, <laughs> first of all, we kind of went, we sort of did for a bit. We went to a, a local church because we thought the best thing was for Wilfred to go to the church school that's right next to our house. That's and like to me, that's like a medieval system. I don't it's understand. Unbelievable Why would that you it happens. There's sign a lot up to of a other, religion for that bribery. There's a lot of other people there doing the same thing, and yeah. you have this sort of code where you're chatting and you go, "So do you?" Uh, no, no, me neither. <laughs> you know, it's extraordinary uh, and so wrong. It's clearly, so wrong. But the, the vicar that the church we went to is lovely. Well, of course, they're lovely. I interviewed the vicar on the last show. She right, was great. Well, obviously, but also it's they, not the point. They recognize. No, no, no. I wasn't saying. I wasn't saying that. What my point was that they recognise the guy, the guy near us, recognises how stupid the system is and completely objects to it as well. But as far as they're concerned, get more people in my church, we'll all have some fun. And it was really nice. I just don't, I don't have faith. But the church was really nice. It was really, it was fine. However, that's the church. I would say it's different at school because the, the things being imparted on those kids, yeah. I, I'm, it's shocking. But also, I suppose I feel this particularly because where I live, the choice would be between a non-faith normal state primary yeah which i suppose is the one we'll choose it seems absurd we'd have to choose because we live basically across the road from it it's obvious that we're in the catchment area yeah but, but maybe we're not i don't know we'll look into it yeah and the other one is a jewish school which is a state-run jewish school which has a quota of non-jewish kids harvey is half jewish in the sense that i am and his mother isn't mm. but because in orthodox judaism the religion passes through the mother's line not the father oh please so you're but, not technically jewish well, enough i don't know and just, just the point is just, even if we were like even if they said yeah of course that's fine he's half jewish as soon as he gets there that's the shit he'll be told about yeah but is it also it's orthodox right so it'll be full on it'll well, be creationism and that sort of stuff yeah, right? yeah yes as far as it goes in primary school yes yeah and you know like i say there'll be non-jewish kids there too but he will immediately be defining himself in grades of a religion that I oh. don't believe in. I mean, and I don't want him to. I want him to know that he has a Jewish history. I don't want him to be yeah, thinking about that. Age your, three. There's a difference between your heritage and you know what you're being taught at school about now, about what you are becoming. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of, oh, I don't want him madness. to think it's what he is or isn't. Exactly. No, no. Lots of our friends have gone to the religious school, and it, it shocks me. And horrifies me when I hear those kids the same age as my eldest son talking about God this and God that and Jesus this and Jesus that. God is watching us. Jesus wants us to do this. It's like, oh my. And, and I know their parents are not religious. And yet the parents are fine. They're fine with their kids taking the stuff on board because as far as they're concerned, it's a good, it's like a nice little middle class prep school. You and I were both worried before we had our boys about our role as sort of masculine exemplars to our children. Yeah, I don't know. I think my fears now are not that I'm not whatever they were before. You know, I'm not sort of masculine exemplar, as you said. But I always have it in the back of my mind that I want to I want to take him to a martial arts class because I don't want him to be a pushover because he is a sensitive, intelligent, wears his heart on his sleeve boy, like I think I probably was. And I've spent my life being afraid of being physically dominated. <laughs> so I would like him to... I, I, I worry that he'll be too soft for all the worries that I've expressed on the, in these conversations. I am in love with them both. I'm in love with him and his attitude and his outlook and his songs and his stories. And his, you know, he started doing these quite long winded stories and story songs where he improvises loads of stuff. 
and it's brilliant. How do you deal with um, daddy, 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 daddy? Both of them do it. Wilfred, into, I mean, literally, he'll come and stand in our faces and go, ah! Try and get attention. <laughs> what do you, what is it? What is it? I don't, I've got a brown pen. Right, yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks. Anyway. But all they want often is, yes, just that. Um, I just want to go, uh-huh. Yeah, what? Yeah. I mean, just, uh, how do you tell them, just talk, to, just talk, I'm here. Like, you don't need to say daddy, and then wait for me to say yes, and then talk you about not, the stupid thing. You know what drives them mad? Wilfred used to get this, he'd go, daddy, and I'd go, Wilfred. You know, like you do. Yeah. We understand that rhetoric, but yeah. they don't get it. They think they're, you're asking them something. Daddy, Wilfred. No, no, daddy, Wilfred. <laughs> no, I'm asking you, you can't ask me a question because I'm asking you a question. So Did when they? they say something that's complete nonsense, yeah. do you just not address it because you can't be asked I mean I find myself doing that a lot like he'll say because I, I feel like every day should be an education you know if he's trying to say something interesting because this is the thing at this age they do don't they they yeah, say you've got these high fucking standards they, they say new things every day and I feel like if he says something like I don't know grandma lives in a tree I feel like I should say well grandma lives in a house he's got trees oh, no, in the garden oh no don't be that parent no no, what, what are you doing? What? That's like the conversation he wants to have, isn't it? No, if he says grandma lives in a tree... You just say, yes, she does? Yeah, cool. That's good fun, isn't it? And then he'll go, yeah, and then he'll carry on living in a weird fantasy world. You want them to live in a weird fantasy world. Yeah, because it develops their imagination, but yeah, you don't, don't want them to be living in their fantasy world, Tom. No, because they're a child, child, childhood is a fantasy world, Oliver. So why are, you, why are you pulling them down off that tree? Let them go up that tree and be monkeys for six or seven or eight years. No, you see, I think he wants a conversation about it. All right, tell him that Grandma lives in a flat, and also Santa's not real. Right. Do you know what I mean? Why aren't you just, just yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, like, have... So when he says whatever bullshit, you just say, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Pretty much, yeah. Unless no, I think you're making life easy for yourself. Unless, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, thank you. You acknowledge oh, no. that that's the case. No, but also... Not just about developing his imagination. It's making life easier for you. Everything I do is to make life <laughs> as easy as possible for myself. Um, you I'm, know it's true. <laughs> I'm happy to admit that. Like, when we talked to my eldest about my dad not being around, my dad died 25 years ago, where's grandpa? Edmund starts, uh, Wilfred starts saying, grandpa lives in Africa. Mm. I'm not going to go, no, he doesn't. Of course not. He was only three. I was like, yep. He lives in Africa. Do you? Yeah, for a bit. And then when he got to four or five, he worked it out and we talked about it then. But at that age, you're not an encyclopedia. You're just a loving parent to encourage him and allow him to run around mentally as much as he likes. And if you keep pulling him back and trying to instill reality, I think that's, uh, I'd say, slightly futile. And I do hear it a lot. You hear hear that. Don't you hate parents who are performance parents? You hear them on the bus often. No, Johnny. Actually, I think you'll find that we're going to do this today. No, well, if you get your pencil case out now, it's all a bit too loud. Performance parents. Performance parents. That parenting. phrase that you've created, or you yeah, yeah, yeah. Performance it's, parenting. I know exactly what you mean. It makes my skin crawl. Yeah, it's it the soft play, isn't it? Where it's like, Rachel, if you if you hit that child with that. We're not going to do this later today. I'm like, why do you need to tell everybody? Are you telling me that's for the benefit of the child? It's not. It's for the benefit of the other parents. To know that that you're a good parent. I hate it. Yeah. It drives me mad. Whereas also, all you need to do is, as well you know, is crouch down and go, Rachel, do you want to go? Okay, do that again. We're going to go. Yeah. That's all you need to do. Yeah. This whole performative thing I hate because then it ups the level of the kid, what the kids are doing as well. It's it's, That's interesting. You think they actually, they react to it badly? Yeah. They do more because they they sort of become this show. They're the centre of the attention, yeah. Because they're climbing up the slide. Their parents the loudest, the they're going to be yeah. the loudest too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it drives me out of the wall. Do you feel you ever have a genuinely authentic conversation with your son because you're always, to an extent, performing the role of dad? Uh, what well, do I feel like that? Yeah. Now, I am starting to have genuine conversations with Wilfred. 
So he's six. He's six, only now. But not with your three-year-old? No. Yeah. And I remember this, when my dad died, uh, when I was 13, and my eldest brother said, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's, everything's awful and it's really bad, but at least you got to know him properly. He mm. wasn't just the dad figure. Mm. He wasn't mm. that character. Mm. He was him. And he mm. spoke to you about stuff, and he did for years, you know, for a good few years. And I would say with Wilfred, only recently do I sit and go, well, what do you think about, um, we'll talk about, like he's really obsessed with Liverpool football and we'll talk about that and have proper chats and it's wonderful it's brilliant uh that's just a level of maturity when they can talk on the same level what i'm saying is level wise i'm about the same as a six-year-old yeah (laughs) it works quite well it's a good system Life hacks for dealing with a nearly three-year-old. Oh, good. Um, always giving him warning. Okay, you've got five minutes left of this. Okay, you've got two minutes left of this. Okay, now we're turning it off. Mm. Stuff like that. You're having one episode of Paw Patrol. Yeah, sure. But then reminding them because they've got no real yeah. concept of time yeah. or they're starting to. Um, his big thing is music and Spotify playlists and listening to music. And he wants to keep switch sweeping past. He wants to hear the first three seconds of song after song after song. Does he have so, his own Spotify playlist? Yeah, oh yeah, hundred percent. What's the number one most played song on it? Oh, it changes. It changes all the time. Probably don't a, say something cool. You're going to say like Leonard Cohen or something, aren't you? Yeah, uh, not Leonard Cohen. But Harvey's he, is the wheel on the bus. I'm, oh, he doesn't do kiddie songs at all. <sighs> My son doesn't do kiddie songs at all. He, I'm learning about music through his Spotify playlist. I suppose on. And frequent really? rotation at the moment is like the uh, the the most not the most recent one, but the remake. You know, the Muppet Show. The the what's it one with them? Um, the film, the, the, the Amy Muppets. Adams, the film. Yes, the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we uh, life's a happy song. Okay, you know, we yeah. get a lot of that, and we get a lot of um, he lo- he loves the score of Kung Fu Panda. So Jaded, uh, which is Hans Zimmer. So mm-hmm. the and it's the most exciting. <laughs> it's like this hugely epic kind of. I mean, it makes me tear up. I love it. So that gets a lot of uh, uh, airtime. But he also, like, he, there was this song he... Come on, he must like If You're Happy and You Know It, Clap Your Hands. I don't believe oh, yeah, that your don't, child is just exclusively six music he listener. Might, no, I mean, what was he... In fact, I can tell you, he's, uh, he was singing to himself last night. My wife's, because I was away. My wife reminded me, he said, he's... Here we go. Um, he has just sung himself to sleep with Moana and We Built This City. Fine, OK. <laughs> so it's a so, mix. Oh, God, I tell you, the worst is the Hotel Transylvania 3 soundtrack. Okay, good It's tip. all like massive bangers by Tiesto, like music that literally sounds like... <laughs> <laughs> and he loves it because he knows that we hate it, and so he, he really gets a thrill out of putting it on. Life hack from my wife, she took him to see that movie at the cinema and listened to a podcast in one ear. Nice. So he had a good cinema experience. He's been three times now, and he fully paid attention to all of it. It's so terrible. Is Edmund still in nappies? No, this is new information. Great. As How of, did it happen? Uh, Harvey of, is still in nappies. Okay, fine. Well, he's still, he's a month behind and it only happened about a month ago. So he's in, he, the reason he's not in nappies anymore is because he's going up a room at nursery in January. So he goes into the next room and they said he can't go into the next room unless he's toilet trained. Wow. So there was real pressure Did there. they say that with some judgment on you as parents, did you feel? Everything that they say to us in the nursery is said with some judgment. Because I feel as a parent that we haven't really... You'll be amazed at how easy it is. It isn't easy. He won't do it. We're talking about it all the time. Yeah, We're like, you, need, you to- need to tell us when you need a poo. And then he'll say, I want to sit on my potty. And I'll be like, holy shit, this is the moment. Like, drop everything. Yeah. Drop his trousers. Stick him on his Paw Patrol potty that we've had for six months. <laughs> and he just sits there and laughs and looks at us. That's fine. 
And then, well, then, but eventually he's going to do it. But you also, you know the moment when he's back to Pune, right? No. Does, does he take himself off? No. Well, no. yeah, but only retrospectively do I realise because well, he's playing. You need to tune into that. Edmund does this thing where he takes himself off and I was like, ah, that's a poo. So I'd run upstairs and sure enough, it works. But it, it takes a while. Poo's take a lot longer. Than Wee's. Yeah. Edmund was winging on the party and using it because, and here it comes back to this thing Older brother. Older brother. Yeah. He's seen Wilfred do it loads and also he wants to cross streams. They want to make X marks the spot <laughs> and they do it every night together. It's honestly, Ollie, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. The book is called Oh Crap, I think. Okay. There's a book called Oh Crap and we've done that book. We've done that system and it's okay. all modular and the book even comes, this is awful, the book comes with a cheat sheet at the back for dads if you can't be bothered to read the whole book. So it's like support your wife, support the you know you, the, support the person who's read the book. Trust that this system works. But it, it's all things like um, there are different levels that you go to, and it tells you when to expect the sensation of not wearing a nappy is different to the sensation of wearing a nappy. So there are certain things where, in all honesty, my wife masterminded the whole affair. <laughs> I reap the benefit. One thing that people have said in response to these episodes, particularly male listeners, is it's really refreshing to hear men talking about the challenge that men face because although it is, as we've always said, and the caveats are there, less significant than the challenges faced by women, it is worthy of its own airtime. What other challenges do you think particularly of being a man in a scenario where you've got two? I find one of the biggest challenges is my social life as a dad. Uh, we now have a mum friend who I'm proper friends with. Like, she's my friend as well as my wife's friend. And her little girl goes to childcare the same day as my son. And she comes back on a Tuesday and we have a cup of tea and a natter. Just me and her, because mm. my wife's often sleeping, recovering from baby times. So during that time, I get to have the kind of mum chat that's really important to mums that mums get. We have a bit of a laugh. We chat about just anything and everything. She's like a proper mate. That has been really missing from my parenting life. I've, I've found it isolating socially. I've got a weird freelance job. Obviously, I'm a comedian, so I'm away in the evenings. That's yeah, and all the isolating. NCT dads, they go back to work, don't the they? The NCT dads all go back to work. And uh, because I'm, I'm in a new city as well, and uh, all of the other comedians I was expected to hang out with are back in London, you know, um, I've found that very, very challenging. And my whenever we took him to baby swimming, baby sensory, all these different things... I would always be kind of too keen, like like worryingly keen to make friends with the other people that were there. A, they're women, nine, 90% of them are women, so you feel weird going up, you know, making overtures of friendship mm. to a woman. And B, I'm a man, so I don't know about making overtures of friendship generally because that's not how male friendships work. And I'm always jealous of, like, you know, the, the ladies' changing rooms at swimming where they all go for coffee afterwards the men's changing rooms, I have now been working very hard to institute a culture of we have a laugh and a chat together. And it's hard because everyone's a dad and we don't just... To, I don't know the names of the other dads. I, I was at Softplay yesterday with Harvey and there was a dad at the next table and as it turned out, Harvey made friends with his daughter and they were walking around and he was saying, she's my best friend because he likes to find someone who's about six months older than him and then be dominated by them. And that's what he was doing. And so I started chatting to him, saying, oh, it looks like our, our kids are best friends now, ha-ha. And it was hard. Like, he, we had a bit of a conversation. He was like, yeah, you know, we're looking to schools at the moment, whatever. But he was looking at his phone, he was checking his emails. And I just thought... I'd, I'd hate for the reason... It might just be that he was a bit awkward and or didn't want to have a conversation, but I don't think so. I think the gender rules were different. And if we'd they both are. been mums... It would have been Definitely. much more open right from the beginning. And as it was, it was like, 
I'll talk to you, but we're never going to be mates because we just happen to be at the same soft play. So let's just keep this to uh, business. Definitely, you know? <laughs> definitely, Where do you live? What school does he go definitely. to? Definitely, I feel that all the time. And I would say the one positive thing is it takes time, keep turning up, and you do eventually meet. Even if it's mums, even if you just have to go, I'm going to mostly meet mums and be friends with mums. Mm. There are a couple of dads now who I think of as dad friends. It just takes time. Men need to see each other in the same place at a regular thing every week for a year before they can become friends and women can seem to be able to do it on like the third go and particularly in a difficult time of your life it's isolating and you need to get your head down and get through that bit and make friends is there any chance of a third no i I think for lots of reasons the age our age and um the space i'm not i'm not upgrading our car yeah (laughs) get a new car i can't so prosaic isn't it that's the reason people would because if one happened by accident, like the the fact of the size of your car just wouldn't be a <laughs> that wouldn't be the concern about whether or not to keep the baby, would it? You wouldn't be like, well, oh, I don't want to upgrade I mean, the car. Yeah, but it's... you know, somehow when people are planning one, that mm. is the kind of thing you think about, isn't it? I think ninety percent of Ford Galaxies are bought by people who've had an accidental <laughs> third child. Tom Price. And Stuart Goldsmith. If you'd like to hear more from them, uh, you can catch Tom hosting Weekend Breakfast on Magic Radio every Saturday and Sunday morning, uh, and also the Radio Wales comedy panel show, The Leak, L E A K. Uh, you can find that on the BBC Sounds app. And catch Stuart live on stage if you can. He's always touring. Uh, but also his podcast, The Comedian's Comedian. If you've never heard it before, I highly recommend It's an excellent uh, long-form interview show where he talks to a mix of big names like Russell Brand, Jimmy Carr, uh, and also cult comedians about their creative process. Uh, I would highly recommend the interview with Barry Cryer if you're at all interested in comedy. Uh, you can find that at comedianscomedian.com. And remember, you can now listen to all our How to Be a Dad episodes on one handy page at modernman.co.uk slash dads uh, right as ever um a, a gear shift is about to occur uh, alex fox will be talking heterosexual bum sex after this another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time to wish a happy and moist new year to Alex Fox. It's the Foxhole. Hello. Hello, Ollie. How was your Christmas? What have you been up to? Well, a little while ago, I took part in an event called Wow Exeter, which was part of the Women of the World series of uh, of debates and, and events. Uh, and it saw Separate me... Separate from World of Warcraft Exeter, which is its own convention. <laughs> Sometimes when the two come together, <laughs> amazing things happen. Uh, well, one of the things that I was responsible for there was hosting a panel discussing the politics of body hair. And this is your festive New Year story, why? Because one of the suggestions made on uh, how we can make it less of a big deal, uh, one of the suggestions was to have a sponsored month where women have a great excuse to grow out their hair for charity and it means that if they are walking around their workplaces hairy, there's a reason why and hopefully it will help to normalise that. To like Movember? 
like Movember. But fan you, Harry. You're very, very close. It's going to be Jan you, Harry. It's now been made into a thing. So throughout January, women are being encouraged to grow their body hair or their facial hair or both, whatever they feel comfortable with, uh, and raise funds for um, a body positivity charity called Body Gossip, who go into schools and speak to young people about feeling comfortable in the skin they're in. And I think it's a really great initiative. It's a really interesting idea. I just wonder if you're someone who, a lady, who grows your hairy armpits out because you don't think it's a big deal, whether in a way this almost turns it into a thing you have to talk about, like people are raising money to do it. Do you know what I mean? I hear you, but I think this is one of those things where... (laughs) I hear you, yeah, yeah. I think this is one of those things where it's you do you. If you are somebody who's been looking for an excuse to make your first foray into being more hirsute and feel more comfortable for you and so that if you are challenged on it if remarks are made or questions arise then you can use Harry as an excuse It's time for our sex question of the week It's from uh, a married man of three years who has chosen to remain anonymous and says Dear Ms Fox Where do you stand on pronouns by the way? I mean what do you prefer? Can we go for Muff? Fine Dear Muff Fox I'm a married man of three years who is very much in love with his wife and has a great sex life. Woohoo! Why get in touch? The only thing is, here we go, I really want to try anal sex with my wife as this is something I've fantasised about for a long time, enjoying watching anal porn in the past. But any time I've suggested it, she categorically shuts the idea down, telling me that it's dirty and wrong and occasionally suggesting I must be gay if I want to stick my meat up an arse. But I am 100% attracted to women, and although I'm supportive of any person's sexual preferences, men are definitely not for me, and I only want my dong up her body. It might be the way he's saying it. He's He's got away with words. I'd love to put my meaty dong (laughs) up your body. That may be the problem. Yeah. Uh, I love her. I only wish to be with her and no one else. I just want to add this to our wonderful sex life. What advice would Alex give so that I can satisfy my fantasies and persuade her to try anal but I still want to remain respectful to her. Okay, well, let's get to the bottom of this. We have a uh, posterior play-based question here. Um, And we have spoken quite a lot about anal sex in the past, so regular listeners will know that when it comes to bums, I'm not talking out of my arse. First up, this idea that anal sex is dirty. This is something that a lot of people worry about. They think, well, if you go up the log flume, you're going to meet the captain's log. They worry about faeces. They worry about poo, basically. And and that, that is a justified concern, as we've discussed before. But you usually say try it in the shower first time, that's your advice, right? Yeah, as long as you keep your general hygiene high, so you've just had a shower, you use plenty of lubricant because the bum doesn't produce its own. It's not like the vagina, but also lube helps to make sure that everything slips in and out easily. But this is a psychological kind of dirtiness that she's referring to, isn't it? It's not just literally about shit, is it? No, because she also implies that it's wrong somehow. Now, for a lot of people, this association with wrongness comes from a deep-rooted fear that anal sex will harm them in a physical way if you take it really slowly and as I've just said use plenty of of lubricant uh, and don't thrust in and out too too fast and hard basically you want to you want to go want to go slow and shallow with the thrusting at first uh, then there is no reason why anal sex should do you any harm Um, it's just about taking it at an ultra sloth like pace 
Um, there was absolutely nothing wrong with enjoying your body either. If, if this is something that feels good to you, there is no reason why you shouldn't do that. Uh, for other people, the wrongness is entrenched within religious and social beliefs. I'm afraid my personal opinion is that any religion that says that any type of homosexuality or non-heterosexuality is wrong, the problem lies with the religion rather than with the sexual persuasion uh, or indeed that particular sex act. So this argument that, oh, it's not, it's not the normal way to have sex, therefore there's something wrong about it, I just think is outdated and very misguided. Do you think there's anything in what she's said, though, I'm taking away anything pejorative from the suggestion, that if you are interested in heterosexual anal sex, then possibly you are someone who might be more interested in homosexual sex, that there is a scale there, that arse play has a role on that scale, regardless of what gender it is that you're having sex with? But it's a misunderstanding to think that everyone who is gay has anal sex. Mm. We're also seeing increasing numbers of heterosexual people trying out anal play and anal sex. There was a survey published in the Journal of Sex Research recently, actually, that said that 38.2% of men aged between 20 and 39 uh, said that they had had some kind of heterosexual anal experience in their lifetime. That's quite a high figure. Over a third of straight-defining men say that they've had some kind of anal anal play. And is that partly because people are more open about their sexual fantasies now, or at least they're being asked the question? I mean, that's not something that would have appeared on a survey in the 1960s. Or is it, as some people will be thinking, actually the influence of porn that's done this? Anal sex has, you almost might say, a disproportionate depiction in pornography compared to you know when you actually speak to heterosexual people generally the amount of people who are doing it on a regular basis it's in almost all porn isn't it yeah not for the first time i'll refer people to john ronson's fantastic audio documentary the butterfly effect which explains why we are seeing um, more sex that isn't just um, straight intercourse in our pornography these days but is that the influence you think that might be changing the data might be causing more basically more men to be asking their female companions to give it a go. I think there's a variety of influences here. I think people are becoming generally more open-minded about the idea that if something feels good, then it's a good thing to do, so long as everybody is consensual, informed about what they're doing and fully on board with it. Um, I also think that people are starting to care less about whether something has an association with being gay or not. Sure. For a start, they realise that liking a physical act doesn't really make you one thing or another, also that it doesn't, excuse my French, fucking matter if it does, so, mm. long, as, so long as you're enjoying yourself. Okay, well, actually, okay, so on the point of enjoying yourself, and what we don't want to be doing is giving this man advice to coerce his partner. No. Like, if she doesn't want to do it, she doesn't want to do it. But let's say that actually, maybe on some level, she is interested and so far has said no. What could you advise her about why it might feel good for her to try it? Well, whilst men do have their prostate uh, located in such a manner that it can be stimulated via anal play, Mm. uh, which is a very pleasurable thing indeed, women don't have a prostate, so it doesn't make as much immediate sense as to why anal play might feel pleasurable for them. But whilst the prostate isn't present, there are many, many nerve endings in the rectal area that can still feel incredibly good, so long as you go really slowly Mm. and use plenty of lubricant etc etc for some people as well this idea of breaking the taboo of doing something that they may have considered stigmatized or dirty or wrong or all those associations that we actually know shouldn't be true playing with that idea and going against those social norms for some people is actually part of the thrill itself 
You mentioned porn before there, though, and I do think that it's interesting that our writer here says that he has been highly inspired by porn and he's told his wife that this is a big fantasy of his. It's possible that her reluctance to try anal actually doesn't hold its roots in what she's purporting to say about it, that maybe she doesn't worry so much that she thinks it's wrong slash gay slash dirty, but that she fears that because he has placed so much emphasis on this being his big dream, mm. that once she's let him in the back door, he will never want to go round the front ever again. And that's actually quite a common worry amongst women. They think that once they've relinquished the keys to the back entrance, that that is all their partner will be interested in and they will have set a precedent that means anal sex will happen all the time. A lot of people worry that anal sex is going to feel unpleasant and um, and and hurt them. I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but better a broken record than a broken arsehole. Mm. If you go really, really slowly and exactly. use lots and lots of lube, then that shouldn't be the case. I do think that this person should be very careful about how much he tries to persuade his wife because she absolutely has the right for this just not to be her cup of tea for whatever reason. Whilst I would certainly challenge her on her ostensible belief that this is a dirty, wrong or gay practice and I would encourage her to um, reassess those uh, those labels, she might well say, OK, well, I don't think it's dirty, gay or wrong anymore, but I still don't want to do it. Mm. And she absolutely has that right there are some things in this world that people just don't want to try in the first place and uh, you have to be very careful not to pressure them into that whilst it's great to be an open-minded lover you shouldn't think that you are obliged to try anything and everything your partner wants it doesn't necessarily make you uh, a bad or close-minded person if there are a few things that are just on your I never want to do that list. This is something where they really need to have a deep conversation I think about her genuine mm. reasons Plus for not wanting to do this. Uh, I Why do can't think... you just button it all up and keep it to yourself, ever? <laughs> just once. Well, he wants her to unbutton it. That's, that's the problem. That's like, no, fine, Alex said it's off menu. Let's not talk about it ever again. Well, one thing I would encourage him to do if they do sit down and have a chat about it is to be very careful not to make it sound like he's having a whinge that he's only getting the minge. There is a Mm. real problem here that uh, potentially his wife will feel like her vagina, uh, her genitals, are not satisfying enough for him alone. And And that might make her cringe. uh, And that might make her cringe, yeah. She might feel feel some shame. She might feel some some body confidence issues there, some concern that... um, he only wants anal sex because there's something wrong with her front parts. Yeah. He needs to be really aware of that. If they do then mutually agree that they want to try some anal play with both of them very much on side for that, for a start, he needs to remember that it doesn't have to be full anal sex. In fact, I would really strongly recommend that it isn't full anal sex the first time. But what does that mean? Try things like rimming on yeah. the outside, um, some buttock massage, maybe the insertion of a very small toy or a finger. Let your wife know that this first time that you're going to play together in that manner, you are not going mm. to stick your dick there. Mm. And stick to your word and he should try and pay attention to the rest of her body as well so he, she is appreciated as a full person and as a full body not just an arse Alex it's been another eye-opening arse-opening series of the foxhole thank you for all of your sage advice well it's a shame that I have to bring it to a close well if it's well lubricated it doesn't matter <laughs> uh, if you have a question of sex for the next series of the foxhole what should you do with it please do wing it my way uh, you want to head over to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click feedback <laughs>
And if you want to follow Alex on social media for... Uh, <laughs> I don't even want to make a connection with this conversation. <laughs> for more, uh, where would you do that? If, you, if, you've, if you're interested in bums and want to be my social chums, sure. uh, head to Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Alex Fox. That's A-L-I-X-F-O-X. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It's Phil, who's been nominated by his fiancée, Martha, who has bought us a beer for the privilege. Thank you. She says Phil has just turned 30, loves tea, football and WWE. He's specifically a Spurs fan, a big fan of a bow tie and pocket square, and is also the funniest, kindest, most wonderful guy I know, and I can't wait to marry him charming note to end the series etc uh, phil your fiance has not actually mentioned where you live so i'm gonna have to appoint you an ambassador for tottenham hotspur that seems like the sort of thing you'd like uh, go the spurs congratulations our music is by django django i've been ollie man the producer matt hill and we'll see you in the spring Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.